If you would please, and turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read God's Word uh, before we look into it in greater detail. And I'm going to read actually a larger section of Scripture this morning. I'm going to read the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4, and that's where I'd like to direct your attention. Um, if you have a Bible with you, or if you don't have a Bible, you can use one in the pews. It's on page 1158 in your pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible at all, I'll say again, feel free to please take one of the ones from the pew, uh, take it home with you as our gift to you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word if you don't have one. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I'm going to start reading. You follow along as I read from the New International Translation of uh, the Scriptures. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's work, people, for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, We will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is, Christ. From Him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Uh, This week, the British newspaper, the Daily Mail, had an article about movie director Oliver Stone's son, Sean. Oliver Stone's uh, son, um, uh, Sean has recently converted to Islam. Here was the, the head, uh, headline of the article. Oliver Stone's son becomes a Muslim, but he insists he is holding on to Christianity and Judaism. Uh, here's the story. Uh, Stone's son, Sean, is in Iran. He is working on a film about an Islamic mystic poet named Rumi, and he recently converted to Islam, and now Sean Stone is a uh, devout uh, Shiite Muslim. He changed his name to Ali, and, and he actually has been speaking out recently in Iran, defending some of the actions undertaken by Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. 
Uh, he was raised, Sean Ali Stone, was raised uh, Jewish, that's the faith of his father, and Christian, which is the faith of his mother. And he said this week this interesting thing about his conversion. He said, the, conver- the conversion to Islam is not abandoning Christianity or Judaism, which I was born with. It means I have accepted also Muhammad and the other prophets. Uh, and with this story, Ali Stone here becomes the hero of postmodern religion. The, he is the penultimate example of someone who can be spiritual but not religious because he can take all the fine things of all these three major religions and combine them together. And with his wisdom, he can eliminate all the negative things that comes from these faiths so he won't be a terrorist or an extremist, just a devout, good person. And he's obviously a spiritual person in control of his spiritual life. He has been to the spiritual smorgasbord and filled his plate with all the good things from all of these faiths. His new mixture of faith, which is to be lauded, right? His new mixture of faith will only offend three types of people. Anybody who takes Christianity seriously, anybody who takes Judaism seriously, or anybody who takes Islam seriously. Now, I will let the Jews and Muslims speak for themselves in this matter if they want to, but I hope uh, that you can already sniff out several ways in which what Sean Stone claims about himself collides with what we believe the Bible says about following Christ. Maybe you can already sniff out some of those Problems. I hope that those questions that you have about the inherent contradictions uh, in his religious cocktail are uh, based somewhat on our study of Ephesians and have something to do with the church. What about the church? What about, um, if, if he is a, a Christian, if Sean Stone is, is a Christian, what about his local community of faith? Uh, what do his pastor, his elders... What do his small group members believe about his conversion? And if he doesn't have men and women in his life like that, he should have very little confidence in the reality of his claims to be a Christian. It is difficult, if not impossible, to be a follower of Jesus Christ and isolate yourself from a local community of believers. Uh, We come today to the fourth uh, week of five weeks that we're going to spend in these 16 verses of Ephesians 4 that are devoted to our life together in the church as a congregation. I fear I have already repeated myself too much. Um, Did you realize how church-centered the book of Ephesians is? I wanted us to move through the book of Ephesians so that we could think about this, but, but it's all over the place. Chapters 2 and 3 talk about how God has created the church and why and what He wants the church to accomplish. And now in in chapter 4, we've been talking about how this life together that we have is supposed to work. Uh, We've spent three weeks talking about these verses that I read already. And and of course, over that course of the time, I hope you've noticed some of the nuances that, that Paul brings out about the church. Under this large umbrella of this calling that is ours as followers of Jesus Christ to align ourselves with the local congregation, there are arguments and reasons and, and ideas and themes that flow under that large idea. Let me just um, remind you of, of two of them and then I'm going to expand on, on, on one of them. Our focus for today is actually going to be on verses 11 through 13 of this uh, passage 
uh, the plan is I'm going to talk about verse 13 for a moment in a second, and then we're going to dig more deeply into verses 11 and, and 12. Um, these verses remind us that there are strands that tie together how we're to be thinking about the church. And I just want to mention uh, three of them. One of these strands is God-centeredness. God-centeredness. There is a profound God-centeredness to the church. We are called together by one Lord according to our profession of one faith into one body, the church. Church life is not primarily about you finding Christian friends. And it's not primarily about you growing in your spiritual life. It is primarily about God Himself. Which in many ways is stunning because the church is such a flawed community. Every church is. You remain committed to a local congregation not because it's perfect, not primarily because it meets your need, but for God's sake, for the immensity of who He is. Some of you, I I know some of you, have been burned by churches. Some of you have been burned by people in this church. But think about it here. Christ still calls you over to the church. There there is nothing uh, that... Uh, you can say to Jesus Christ about the church that will surprise Him. No one knows more about the church's flaws than Christ Himself, and He still is the head, and He still calls you to align yourself with the body. There is never a time when you will uh, say, can you, you can say to God, you know God, I'd go to that church, but do you know what those people are like? I mean, do you know the problems that they have? God is not going to say to you, I didn't know. I had no idea. He's not going to say, well, you know, of course, you don't have to go. You don't have to be part of the church because he's not going to say, there's nothing that he does not know already about the church. He knows more about our strengths and our weaknesses as a congregation than anybody in this room and he still calls you to it. There is a God-centeredness in the church. Now, the second strand here, uh, and this is related to the first, something I just mentioned, these 16 verses remind us of human reality. Human reality. Our Lord, knowing the depths of our sinfulness, tells us in His Word to be patient and to be humble and to be gentle and tolerant. Uh, We're growing up into Him because we fall so, so far short of His character. There's probably not going to be a week that goes by in your participation in this congregation in which you're not going to have to exercise great forbearance towards someone else. Gentleness. Humility. So these two things we have coming together thus far. We have this massive, glorious beauty of the infinite God that is found in this body that manifests His wisdom and His grace. This great God. And we also have the stench of human depravity together in, in a church. Both of these things coming together. But then there's a third strand for for church life that is brought together that ties away how we think about it that's in these verses. And that third strand is specific goals. Specific goals. God has specific intentions for your life and for mine as we think about participation in our local body of believers. 
we're actually going to spend a few minutes talking about this together this morning, and I will just warn you that I'm probably breaking at this moment in time about 14 principles of a good sermon, because um, technically I'm still in the introduction and review part of the sermon, and uh, instead I'm going to about to unfold a new verse. So I'm probably breaking some rule here. Fortunately, you're better listeners than I am a better preacher, so we'll be in, in okay shape, I think. You'll, you'll follow along. What I want to do is I want to talk about the goals that God has for us as a church based on verses 13 and verse 15 of this passage. Uh, verse 13 says, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 15 is very similar. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head that is Christ. Uh, one of God's specific goals for us is, we be, is that we become a community of believers, a community of people united together in one faith. United together in, in one faith. He, he's speaking here about the content of what we believe. We are to f- affirm together one set of ideas, one core set of beliefs. That's the role that our doctrinal statement plays in our church. Uh, we do not have a doctrinal statement because we've been commanded by God to have one. And, and our doctrinal statement, as good as it is, did not descend from heaven. What our doctrinal statement is, though, is this summary of the one faith that we as a congregation together are committed to. This is where uh, we center our, our beliefs and our hopes together on this one faith. There are things more than in the doctrinal statement. There are things not in the doctrinal statement that we agree about. And there are things not in the doctrinal statement that we disagree about. But this is a summary to the best of our ability of the one faith that we as a church are aiming at. Paul here is though more specific than just about us being a community committed to one faith. Where do you, you, we are to be united in the one faith, but more specifically, we're to be united in what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. What we confess about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're united in our knowledge of Him. That, that's central to us. We agree about Him. We agree about his, the fact that He is fully God and fully man in the flesh. We agree about the fact that He lived a sinless life and that He died on the cross as our substitute, paying the penalty for sin that we owe. We agree about His resurrection. We agree about His coming again uh, for us. One of God's goals in calling you to the church is to form a community of believers who are united in one faith, most centrally what we believe about Jesus Christ. But, but there's more than that, that that Paul has in mind here. His goal is also to produce a community that resembles Christ. A community that resembles Christ in His character. We know Him and we are to be like Him. Verse 13, Paul, Paul writes about this. He says, we're supposed to become mature. That is, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And verse 15 has that similar image. We grow up into Him who's the head, that is Christ. Two images for this verse come to mind. You should think about these two images when you read this verse. If you've ever spent time uh, hanging out with a baby, you notice something about their anatomy. 
A baby's head, in comparison to the rest of its body, is huge. A baby's head takes up about, what, 25% of a baby's length. 25% of the baby's weight is in that head. Sometime when you look at a baby and you say, that is an ugly baby, that baby's head is huge, God made it that way, alright? Don't complain. Okay, so, big head in the baby. As a person grows, your limbs, your torso get longer, and the proportion of your head as the total length of your body and total weight of your body shrinks so that when you're an adult, your head is only about 10% of your total height. Your body grows in order to fit your big head that you had when you were a baby. That's what Paul is talking about here. The body grows up to match the head who is Christ. There's another image that perhaps you can think of, something that happens in every single home with a toddler. Maybe you're at home sometime sitting in your kitchen and you hear clomp, shuffle, clomp, shuffle, clomp. What happened? One of your little children has gone and found your shoes and they walk into your room, into the room where you are with your shoes. Shuffle, clomp, shuffle, clomp, shuffle, clomp. And they're so proud of themselves. It's amazing they haven't fallen over on their big fat head. But there they are. Walking along with your shoes. And it's so impressive. And they're so proud of themselves, right? They don't fit. Obviously, they don't fit in these shoes. They're way too big. But someday they will. They're going to grow up into those shoes. And God's design for us in the church is that we would grow up into our head. That we would be like Him. That we would fit His shoes. Huh. We worship a Christ, we worship a Savior who is immeasurably bigger, immeasurably larger than we are. And whenever we speak about Him, we always talk about someone who is bigger and better and more significant than we are. He is vastly beyond us in grace and strength and courage and kindness and gentleness. We always speak about Him this way. But one of God's purposes for you being here and participating in the church is that you begin to resemble Him in grace and kindness and strength and courage. That we grow up together in Him. There was a, a pastor one day who was preaching. He preached a fine message at the end of the service. Uh, a woman in the congregation came up to him and she, she said, Oh, pastor, you preach the gospel so beautifully. You must be such a wonderful person. And he said to her, Ma'am, I can preach more gospel in ten minutes than I can live in ten years. We always speak about the magnificence of Christ and we're, we're working on it. Shuffle clump, shuffle clump, shuffle clump. We're working on it, growing up into Him. Now, let me, let me extend this a little bit, if, if I can think about this more before we proceed. These verses are, are specific about our responsibilities to one another as followers of Christ. And my question, the question you ought to be asking yourself is, who does this include? Who does God have in mind for you to be united with in faith? For you to be united with in your declaration of Jesus Christ? Who is it that God is interested in you becoming like Jesus Christ with? Is it everyone in the whole world who claims to be a Christian? Is it everyone who is here this morning? Is it everyone who is part of a small group? Who, who is it that He has in mind? 
This is one of the reasons, answering that question, is one of the reasons that why in our church we talk about membership. Membership, like doctrinal statements, are not commanded in Scripture. There's no passage of Scripture that says, Thou shalt join thine church. But, but when you join, you are saying to everyone else, I'm with you in this. I am with you in this pursuit of becoming like Jesus Christ. I will partner with you. I will covenant with you. This is my goal, and it's my hope that together we're going to grow up into Him. That's not a goal that you can assume to be true of everyone who comes to church. Our hope is that if it's not, it becomes a goal, but but recognize that there are people who come to our church who are not sure about this whole Christianity thing and are not sure about who Jesus Christ is. And if you're here this morning and you're not, if you then, and I'm describing you, we're really happy that you're here. We're very, very pleased that you're here. And, and my hope is that by being here this morning, you will meet people who are followers of Jesus Christ and, and they'd love to talk to you about what it means to trust in Him as you, as you think. Uh, explore explore who he is and what he's called us to. But, but our, our calling is to unite ourselves with one another for this specific goal. I cannot read these verses also without thinking about the number of men and women in our church who are really wading through difficult waters. I, I've talked about this in, in recent weeks. Uh, there are hurting and confused and frustrated people in our church. And they have questions. They, they want to know, where is God in the midst of this trouble that I'm having? What's, what's God doing? Where, where is He? And how, how is He involved in my life? And, and they want to know questions like, how in the midst of this mess that I'm experiencing, how am I supposed to honor Him? If, and if not just honor Him, how, how can I make it without exploding? Where's God what am I supposed to do? People ask those questions, and it's God's chance, God's will, God's plan that those questions get answered in the church. There, there's no plan B for the achieving the goals of verse 13. God's goals of knowing Christ and being like Him happen inside a local congregation of believers. Haddon Robinson tells about a man who once went to visit a lunatic an asylum for the criminally insane. And he walked into this asylum for the criminally insane and he was really surprised because he found, although there were a hundred inmates in this asylum for the criminally insane, there were only three guards to take care of them. And, and he said to one of the guards, aren't you afraid that the inmates are going to unite, overcome you and escape? And the guard looked at him and said, lunatics never unite with one another. Christians must. Now, that's all review and introduction. <laughs> Today, what I want to do is I want to pick up where Paul does uh, his thought when it comes to spiritual gifts. That's what we're going to focus on for the rest of our time in verses 11 and 12. It's important to think about because I'm interested in the mechanics of how what I've just described works. How does God take someone who is, may not be a follower of Jesus Christ or is a new follower of Jesus Christ, how does God take that person from where they are to where He wants them to be as a functioning follower of Jesus Christ who resembles Christ in His character and knows who He is? How does God take 
that new believer or that unbeliever and, and, and move him through the process of becoming a fully formed follower of Christ? What, what's the mechanics of that process? And I think that's described for us in verses 7 through uh, 12. We talked about 7 through, 9, uh, 7 through 10 uh, last week. His answer to the question is spiritual gifts. That's the, the mechanics. We participate in this, this, this uh, work that God is accomplishing. In response to the generosity of Christ, we are a part of, together, this process. Um, verses 11 and 12 tell us about three elements that are along the way of this process. Uh, gifted men and women who equip the saints to serve. That's what verses 11 and 12 tell us. How does God move somebody from here to here, from immaturity to maturity, where the sweet aroma of Christ pervades their life? How does God do it? Gifted men and women who are equipped to serve, who are equipped, who equip the saints to serve. What I want to do is I want to unfold that phrase for the rest of our time. I want to talk about gifted men and women who equip the saints to serve. Let's start with that phrase, gifted men and women. In verse 11, Paul mentions five specific spiritual gifts. These are not the only spiritual gifts, but these are the ones mentioned at the beginning of this chain that Paul is is thinking about here. Paul's focus is on equipping. I think these are the gifts that are most useful in equipping the saints to do ministry. Um, these gifts do different tasks in the church, more equipping work than those of the gift of mercy or giving or uh, tongues. That, that's why he mentions these five and not the others. Notice here in this verse that Paul is talking about gifts and not offices. There's a difference between gifts and offices. In the New Testament, there are four, as best we can figure, three or four New Testament offices in the church. Apostles, elders and bishops, and overseers. It's one gift with sometimes three titles. uh, Elders, overseers, and bishops. Deacons, and perhaps, according to your interpretation of 1 Timothy 3, deaconesses. Those four gifts, uh, four, excuse me, offices mentioned in uh, the New Testament. Here he's talking about spiritual gifts, not offices. Uh, Harold Honer, in his commentary on Ephesians, talks about the differences between offices and gifts. And it's important to keep that in mind. To fulfill an office in the church, here's some of the differences. To fulfill an office in the church, you either are appointed or elected to that office. But gifts are the result of the sovereign grace of God. A church... A congregation may appoint you to be an elder in the church or a deacon in the church, but it's God who gives sovereignly gifts. There's a difference between offices and gifts. Here's, here's another difference. To fulfill an office, there are uh, certain requirements that are unrelated to gifting. For example, eldership. If you want to be an elder, the requirement is that you cannot be a new believer. And there are requirements about your marital status. But spiritual gifts are given uh, when you become a believer, not in regard to your spiritual maturity. And whether your marital status changes or not, it does not affect whether or not you can have the gift of pastoring, teaching. There's a difference between offices and gifts. Here's another difference. Um, Certain offices in the New Testament are restricted to men holding those offices. This is not true for gifts. 
Uh, we must be faithful to appreciate and equip women in our congregation who have shepherding, pastoral, and teaching gifts. We should be faithful to uh, recognize that there are women in the church with those gifts. But it would be disobedient for us to appoint them to be elders in the congregation. There's a difference between offices and gifts. And the focus in this passage is on gifts. And Paul mentions those five. Here, let's talk about them. The first one is apostleship. Apostleship. The term apostle in the New Testament most often refers to an office. And it refers to someone who is an official delegate of Jesus Christ. Someone who is commissioned to authoritatively represent Christ. Someone who is, is authorized by Christ to speak and write authoritatively for the church. Uh, those people who have that office. And you can think of some of the men in, men in the, the uh, New Testament who have that office. There's the twelve, the original twelve apostles. The apostle Paul is one of those men with that office. Um, there are other men. Uh, Barnabas, Apollos, Titus, James, Epaphroditus are called apostles. Now, here's the question. Is the gift of apostleship still given today? That is, are there still apostles in the church today? Maybe, but not, I think, in the authoritative sense of the early church. This is one of the ways in which we are distinct as a congregation from our brothers and sisters in Sovereign Grace churches. We sing a good bit of Sovereign Grace music. We love their music. We think they're wrong about the church. <laughs> um, they believe that their church, their family of churches, is led by people who have the gift of apostleship in the sense of not just overseeing the churches, but having authority over the churches. Uh, they're led by an apostolic team, and the churches must submit to the decisions of the apostolic team. I don't think that anybody has that type of authority in the church. Perhaps if the gift of apostleship is still given, it refers to skill in planting churches or taking the gospel into new areas. Maybe uh, those who are, are missionaries and outreach partners have apostolic gifts. Not apostolic authority, but apostolic gifts. Maybe. The second gift here mentioned is prophecy. Prophets are men and women who communicated direct revelation to the church. I'm not exactly sure how this worked uh, in the New Testament era. First uh, Corinthians maybe gives us some clues. Maybe when the church would gather together, part of the worship that they would have would be that some of the men and women would speak prophetic messages, they, it would direct revelation from God. Not just messages about the future, but messages for the church, about what the church was supposed to do at that moment in time. And then, as, as best I can tell from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the congregation would evaluate the message that was given by the prophet. And they would think about it and talk about it. Is this genuinely from God? Here's, again, why I, I don't know. Some scholars think that the church had the right to say, well, you're a prophet, but we don't think that what you're saying right now is from God. You might have something for us later, but that, we don't think so. Other scholars think that if you were claimed to be a prophet in the church and you said something that the congregation knew for, that, that is not from God, that you were, to be a, you were to be labeled as a false prophet and not welcomed in the church at all. I don't know which one of those positions is, is correct. Again, there's another question that we have. Is the gift of prophecy still given today? 
Uh, we, our church is, has been uh, associated uh, historically with a group of churches that, that believe that prophecy has not been given, is not given anymore. You can't argue that based on Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 does not help in, in that debate at all and whether or not the gift of apostleship or prophecy are still given. But I think that it appears that the prophetic gift faded from practice among the churches about the end of the second century. We can look historically and find that the gift of prophecy seemed to fade from congregations. Why? I think because the New Testament scriptures were being collected and copied and their authority in the church replaced the usefulness that prophets had. The third gift here is evangelism. Evangelism. Churches of Jesus Christ are to be filled with gospel people. Gospel people keep life of the church centered around bringing people in and telling them about Christ. Few churches are satisfied with, with this work and, and how evangelism happens in the congregation. And our continual cry is that God would, would, would bless us with the privilege of seeing more men and women become followers of Jesus Christ. It's oh, our hope. Evangelism is, is the, the third one. The fourth and the fifth gifts here seem to be linked in, in some way. In fact, some people believe that they constitute one gift, pastor-teacher. Uh, and they have some grammatical reason for thinking that. But I think Paul is describing two overlapping gifts. Two similar but overlapping gifts. The word pastor is a shepherding metaphor. It refers to um, uh, someone who cares for those in the congregation. Those who need encouragement. Uh, he, he is responsible for directing the life of the church. It involves Pastoring involves teaching. But, but teaching itself is less, less focused on the care for people and more on communicating the biblical truth. I, I think the way it worked in the early church is that pastors and teachers would take the truths that the apostles and the prophets would deliver and they would speak it again to the congregation. The pastors with the more of the emphasis on applying the truth and teachers with the more uh, of the emphasis of understanding the truth. These five gifts mentioned here. Maybe as I was describing them, you thought of men and women in our church who are gifted in these areas. Do you think of, of men and women who are gifted as, as in, in pastoral work or in evangelism or in, in teaching? Their presence in our church is evidence of God's grace and the generosity of Christ. And, and this is where this chain of bringing individual followers of Christ to maturity begins with gifted men and women. Gifted men and women who, the second part of the chain here, is equip the saints to serve. Gifted men and women who equip the saints to serve. Verse 12 tells us the reason that God has given gifted people. He says it is to prepare God's people for works of service. It's noun prepare. It's a rare word in the New Testament. Uh, but the, the verb prepare is all over the Bible. It, it shows up in, in, and actually in um, the ancient uh, Greek time. Uh, the, the verb prepare shows up in medical books for uh, healing or mending broken bones. It, it's used to furnish a room or, or put together a garment or instruct and train someone. That's what preparing means. The chief focus 
of gifted apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists is not to do the work, but to equip the people to do the work. In fact, that's so closely related to this third link. Let's move ahead. Gifted men and women who equip the saints to serve. To serve. Christ's plan to move people, individual followers of Jesus Christ, into maturity where the sweet aroma of the gospel pervades their life is through these gifted men and women who equip the saints to serve. Verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service or for the work of the ministry. Now, the men and women uh, who, who he mentions in verse 11 who have these gifts serve the Lord not by doing the work themselves, but by equipping other to, others to do that work. And my question is, how do they do that? <laughs> Let, let's, let's assume here for a minute that, that I have the spiritual gift of teaching. Does this passage mean that I'm going to teach you how to serve? Immediately I'm a little intimidated by that. Does this mean that I'm going to teach the fellowship committee members how to host a reception? Or that I'm supposed to teach the musicians how to play the piano? Or that I'm supposed to teach the twos and threes teachers how to lead children? Or the, 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 the givers how to make a financial plan? Or the nursery workers how to change diapers? Or the roofers to, to know how to put a roof on that we're going to this spring? Is that, is that? If it is, I think we're in trouble. Uh, I don't have any good potato salad recipes for the receptions. At the fellow, and I don't know how many p- pounds of potatoes you need to feed 85 people at a birthday luncheon. 85 pounds? I have no idea. I don't know. Um, I can't give you all of the ins and outs of uh, putting a, a roof on a building. You probably don't want to be on a roof, in a building uh, which I put the roof on. If you have the gift of evangelism or teaching, I think this passage is telling you not that you must master all the skills necessary to serve others. I think that this passage is telling you to be a gospel-centered teacher or pastor so that you can equip the saints with the values and the virtues and the worldview necessary to do their work. I have no idea how much cheat cake to bake for a shower, but I can tell you how through the gospel, to find joy in baking that cake. And I can tell you how through the gospel to respond when somebody makes an unnecessarily nasty comment about the color of your frosting. And I know how you, to teach you how to respond when the cake is gone and you didn't get any of it. I can't give you all of the ins and outs of leading 12 preschoolers at once. I can pray for you. <laughs> uh, but, but some of you are so skilled in caring for these, these little ones. What I can do, though, is I can tell you about the God that you must speak to those preschoolers about. And I can help you find the grace and courage to confront children who are especially egregious in class. Don't ask me to swing a hammer to put a roof on the building. I will do my best. I will do everything I can to, to, to put the roof on. But my calling before God is to help you understand how the gospel makes a difference and why and how you swing a hammer. And, and what you must know in order to fit carrying shingles into your understanding of God's will for your life. 
Those with these gifts are called to equip the church to serve by keeping us focused on the gospel so that the gospel will show up everywhere in what our church does. In the nursery and in the kitchen and in the classroom and on the roof. I think I've talked to you before about uh, our recent visit, well, several years ago, actually, we made to western New York. There's a hospital in Buffalo, New York, called Mercy Hospital. And Mercy Hospital is one of the largest uh, hospitals in western New York, and there's a helicopter. They have uh, a lifeline, a helicopter that flies all over western New York and picks up um, people from accidents who are injured in particular. At one point in time, uh, one of the PR groups from Mercy Hospital was putting signs uh, they were about the same size as those election signs that proliferate during elections. Uh, they, they were putting them wherever the helicopter was landing, and the sign said, Mercy was here. Mercy was here. It's a great line. Reminds me about the gospel. And every single person who's a follower of Jesus Christ in their life, there is this, you could place a sign on them that says, God's mercy was here. My hope from verses 11 and 12 is that every place where someone serves in our church, it might be evident the gospel was here. The gospel was here. Maybe we should make a sign and put it over the changing table in the nursery. The gospel was here. Or paint it on the roof underneath the shingles. The gospel was here. Or hang it in every single room where one of the small groups meets. Or stamp it in the information center. The gospel was here. Uh, when you represent Christ to others, you are representing the gospel and you're cultivating Christ in them in the way that you serve. Uh, uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. And in this book, he tells the story of a, a bishop, a 4th century bishop called Gregory of Nyssa. And Gregory of Nyssa was, uh, his, his brother was a bishop and his brother appointed him to be the bishop of Cappadocia. And Gregory didn't want to go. Cappadocia was out of the way. It was at a small place. He didn't want to go there. And his brother said to him, Gregory, I am not sending you to that place because it will make you famous. I am sending you there to make it significant with the gospel. The distinction comes not from what you're doing, not from where you're serving, but from the gospel that you bring to it. And gifted evangelists, pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets are intended to help you do that. All of our work in the church is a response to the generosity of Christ. We're tied together through His blood. We are joined together as a community of gifted people through whom at God's pleasure He produces maturity in us so we can be like Christ. Someday, somebody here might be in the newspaper. Maybe it'll be in the newspaper, maybe it'll be in the Daily Mail in Great Britain, or the pages of Sports Illustrated, or, or the New York Times. Maybe you'll be the next uh, uh, example of Linsanity. Huh? Maybe. If you're there for your faith as a Christian, it will be God's pleasure that behind you is a congregation of men and women who say, that one is ours. He belongs to us. She grew up in our church. She's part of us. We know she represents Christ because we've talked to her. He is one of ours. We name him because of Christ. That's my hope for you. Let's pray, shall we?
Father, we're grateful to you that we are family and that we find things funny as we meet together. It's the kind gift of yours. Uh, we are thankful to you for um, the, the opportunity and the privilege that we have of gathering together as, as believers this morning. We're thankful to you for uh, gifted men and women in the congregation. God, our desire is to be united in what we believe about Christ and our desire is to grow up into him. We pray that you would, by your spirit, unleash among us uh, gifted men and women who would equip us all to serve. We want the gospel to be evident in everything that we do. Make that so, please. Uh, You are well aware of how we bring sin-stained hands to the teaching and the caring and the serving that we do. God, we pray that that they would be sin-stained, cleansed hands because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray together this morning. And God's people together said, Amen.